Hello, and welcome to Manga Explaining, the show where we recommend great manga to folks who haven't read much manga before. Hosted by Deb Aoki, David Brothers, Chip Starsky, and myself, Christopher Butcher, please follow along with our show notes and reading list at mangasplaining.com. This week, we are doing something a little bit different. We're doing a classic manga. We haven't done a ton of those on the podcast. We are doing a drunken dream. We're covering a drunken dream and other stories by Multohagio. And it's interesting that this is classic manga because it's also kind of not classic manga. I actually picked this one. I was thinking about it really heavily for a while, but it was when David did the retrospective episode on Satomo Nihei that we did at the beginning of the season where we covered like kind of his whole oeuvre by looking at like one chapter from like the first chapter from each of his North American releases and then read like a full volume. And Chip had talked about how he likes seeing how an artist changes and progresses and grows over time that I was like, you know, a drunken dream is interesting because it captures manga from throughout Motohagio's career, including like right up until, you know, air quotes present day when it was published in 2010, I think, or just beforehand. So that was what really made me think of like a good manga explaining pick that, you know, we get that we get something different where we get to see an artist's development over time. We get someone who's considered like a, a masterwork sort of creator in Japan. We get to see something that is different than what we've covered so far in terms of like the age of the manga going all the way back to the 60s in some cases. Yeah, that's why I ended up with Drunken Dream and sort of brought it to the group. And before we get started, I noticed over the last couple of months, we've gotten better saying what a manga is before we just launch into talking about it. Like we at least read the back of the book now. And I'm very impressed with us for doing that. But this one needs, I think, a little bit more introduction. And luckily for fans who are listening to this podcast along with us and reading it, this book not only is the work itself, but the perfect introduction to the work itself, in my humble opinion, because it includes a whole essay on who the hell Moto Hagyu is and why you should care. And it includes a whole interview with the mangaka, which is also crazy rare and was much, much rarer at the time. So this manga was published in 2010, but it was sort of pre-staged by a really special issue of the Comics Journal, a magazine about comics, art, things like that, that happened in 2005. And it was editor or Dirk Deppi commissioned a whole issue on shoujo manga girls manga because basically the comics journal had almost completely ignored manga as an art form up to that point and especially shoujo manga and comics by and for women so this was their like we're gonna try and sort of not only make up for past mistakes but do something deeper and broader and bigger than ever before and they commissioned a bunch of stuff including this essay called the magnificent 49ers by rachel thorne and rachel's been a longtime translator of shoujo manga, was an editor, was a commissioning editor, worked with Viz and other publishers. And Rachel wrote this essay that was called The Magnificent 49ers. And not only was it about mangaka who were mostly, almost entirely unknown, even in the midst of the manga boom in the mid-2000s in North America, these shoujo mangaka that revolutionized girls' manga, shoujo manga, late 60s, early 70s, but also introduced a concept that was a huge part of Japanese manga and Japanese publishing, the idea of this, this, these, these people that were all born in 1949, the year 23 group, Deb, mm-hmm. is that accurate? Yep. Yeah. The year 23 group, because Japan has a different, had a different, eh, has a well, different they, calendar. Well, cal- they, they based the years based on the emperor. So it's Sho- yeah. Showa 23, which is the 23rd year of the Emperor Hirohito mm. reign. And so that's, so it's like, Showa 23 is equal to 1949. 
it's, a, yeah. Yeah, it's weird. So, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the Magnificent 49ers are all these people, or the year 23 group, are all these people that are born in that year. Motohagi was not born in that year. She was born one year, I think, later or earlier. One of the two. But it was this idea that there were this important group of female mangaka who had changed sort of everything in shoujo manga, moved it from being a space that very few women worked in and men mostly worked in as pioneered and sort of by, by people like Tezuka and moved it into women writing about their own experiences, women writing for themselves and for you know younger women in their own audiences, and then pushing that genre even further forward and talking about more mature ideas, more sophisticated ideas, introducing the concept of BL, boys love. And this essay that's in the back of the book is just killer. Rachel knocked it out of the park, changed the whole conversation, and especially in art comics. And it sort of has taken a little while to filter down to the mainstream, but changed the conversation about what is going on with manga and why it's important. And the nicest thing about A Drunken Dream is that it includes this essay. It also includes an interview with Motohagyo, which, as I said, is a, is a really rare thing in 2005 to get an interview like that conducted and published in English. There just weren't a lot of mangaka giving interviews like that, mm-hmm. especially not with the kind of access that Thorne has to, to people living in Kyoto, working you know, at the um, Women's University there. Sekai Kyo- University? Uh, uh, Kyoto, Kyoto Seika University. Kyoto Seika University, where a number of those mangaka still teach. So you get this personable, personal back and forth style interview when a lot of the interviews that were conducted at the time were conducted usually through company reps. And you would get like, and I'm speaking as someone who got to do one of these, but like you send a list of questions, you get a list of answers back that may or may not address the questions you asked. And there are no follow-ups and not happening. So this is, this was like a revolutionary interview. This is a comics journal style interview. And that means, you know, something pretty good. There's a, there's a certain intimacy and familiarity between, that you can read in that interview because mm-hmm. one is they both share a birthday. Both, both <laughs> Rachel wow. and Motohagyo share a birthday and they just seem to have this really nice familiarity and, and friendship, deep friendship. Mm. So you, that's what you're getting in this conversation is this deep, this deep familiarity of each of her work and a deep respect. She's very forthright about her family in this interview, mm. she's very forthright about her challenges as a, in her career. It's it's a really it's a really deep and personal, revealing interview that, like like you're saying, Chris, we don't see. And I'm so happy that they chose to reprint it in this this book because again, that's not the kind of thing that usually happens. A lot of times, manga gets printed and it's just the stories or what have you. So all of that said. That's the kind of stuff that I like in manga. I like to see the behind the scenes. I like to figure out how stuff works, how it got published, who the people were. But a lot of people just read manga to read stories. They don't need to have the interview with the creator. They don't need to read an essay on why the thing that they're reading is important. Maybe they'll like it. Maybe they won't. And that's, I wanted to get all that out of the way because I feel like we do a pretty good job of covering that in the show notes and in social media afterwards, but like kind of not the best job of doing it while we're actually talking to one another on the podcast. Usually we're just like, what did we actually think? And that's great. I think that's maybe why you're here. So thank you for indulging me for the last, I don't know how long we've been doing this, eight minutes. I appreciate that a great deal. Now let's actually talk about the manga itself. Well, um, Dave is going to get that eight minutes down to a tight two to see. <laughs> oh, I mean, maybe 145. Uh, yep, 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 yep. Well, maybe I want to ask uh, too, like, like we all, put it all, in we, the show notes we all read the interview and the article, I'm assuming, yeah? Nope. I did no. not because I was behind schedule this week. <laughs> okay, I, I read it, but I'm pretty I sure I read it like the article when it was in the journal, you know, because mm. I remember that issue, but it's been years. Mm. I was just wondering like whether, you know, like whether you read it or not and whether it, if you had read it, it helped you appreciate the work. 
Mm. I think that's a 25-minute in question. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) My bad. No, we have to pull the rug out from them 25 minutes into the interview when they talk about the work and be like, did you even read to see what it was about that you were reading? That's like, that's the gotcha journalism that we at Mangus Planning have become famous for. I looked at the pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Just look at the pictures. So I, I just went on and on and this, I love doing this to you guys, especially Chip. Wait, do we know what the book is about after all that? Indeed, indeed. (laughs) Can I, I can try to summarize it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, if you want to, yeah, I've been talking for a while. Go for it. It's basically a series of short stories, standalone short stories that kind of give a sampling of Motohagyo's career from her very earliest works to one of her most recent. You see her art style change, and you, while it isn't like it isn't the work that she's most famous for, like she's famous for Heart of Thomas, which is an early kind of like an early boys' love manga, mm-hmm. but not quite an early boys' love manga. The mm. Poe Clan, which is basically about a vampire story, mm. which basically predated Interview with a Vampire by about at least 10 years. Nice. In the, in the fact, there's a young girl who was made into a vampire when she was an adolescent, but she's actually hundreds of years old. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of similar themes. She also, there's some sci-fi story. That's, it's kind of, I guess I'll say A Drunken Dream and Other Stories is a lovely sampler, a poo-poo platter of Moto Hagio's career. <laughs> It has sci-fi, it has shoujo manga, like jose manga, like romances. It has uh, some kind of like more poetic stories. So you're kind of getting a, a little taste of her career and her style and a lot and some of her favorite themes. If I can read the back of the book copy, just, a, just not all of it because it's really long, mm-hmm. but I want to read a little bit because it's so fantagraphic. <laughs> it is unbelievable. <laughs> Moto Hagio has been reinventing shoujo manga. Japanese comics marketed at 10 to 18 year old girls and brackets since 1969 unconstrained by boundaries of genre. She has sculpted a career characterized by intellectual curiosity, psychological authenticity, and an aesthetic sense that has often been at odds with a shoujo manga mainstream littered with sailor moon knockoffs and sub Harlequin romance cliches. (laughs) Wait a minute. I have a different copy on the back of my book. Well, yeah, that's just, that's just from the website. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But, that's good. I like that. Maybe they decided that the best way to try and sell shoujo manga was to not insult shogo to manga on the back of the book. Way to go, fan. I never, you never disappoint. Uh, that is so fantastic. That's amazing. So yeah, it's a, it's a collection of short stories from, we were looking at 1971 to 2007. And I have talked at length already. <laughs> so Deb, you seem the most engaged by this. <laughs> what? What are you thinking? What do you? What did you think of uh, a drunken dream? And and how was it? So, since I know you read it back in the day, what was it like reengaging these stories now after another ten years of reading manga? It was really interesting going back to this again because mm. at the time this was the first Motohagyo I could ever read in English. I, I had mm. heard about all her other works, and they were just not available. So, mm. other than they were eleven, which Viz published back in the day, and I'll be honest, I wasn't. I wasn't a great when I first read her work, I wasn't a big fan of her art style or her storytelling because it was just kind of flew over my head a little bit. What do you mean by that? Like it just didn't register with you? Well, it was just kind of like so cerebral. Yeah, okay. And it was so different than any other shoujo manga I've read. And But that's also why she's great, right? Is that her stories mm. have very, they may look like, you know, you know, the big sparkly eyes and the girls with the curls and stuff like that. But 
it's basically like a chocolate covered arsenic bomb. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, I mean it's I mean that's a really bad way of putting it, but it's basically there's it's it's got a sweet look, but there's something very deep and poignant and maybe disturbing sometimes. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. David, I see you humming and nodding along with what Deb was saying there. What do you think? Yeah, I was thinking so for me, the book didn't really click until Hanshin Half God, like the horror story with the twins. Okay, yeah. Like the earlier stories were pretty good. I, I, re- I quite liked Autumn Journey. I thought that was really good in particular. Girl on Porch had some really funny drawings of dogs. <laughs> but that was the one where I was like, I don't, I think I came into this expecting it to be like a shoujo book aimed at teen girls. And that mm-hmm. one, I was like, who is the audience for this? Like mm-hmm. a distraught conjoined twin, and then you know that has a tragic ending, and there's like all kinds of bitterness and love wrapped around it, and that was sort of my how I started to figure out like Hagio and you know, Drunken Dream more generally, and the, mm. the arsenic bomb thing totally right because <laughs> you expect the flowers, you expect the sparkles, and you get some of that, but you also get a lot of people trying to kill themselves or being like gaslit. The Iguana Girl story was like a, a marvel of comedy and psychological horror. It felt like Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like it was like one of the most like adorable gut punches. Yeah. Super <laughs> That's good. a good way of putting it. <laughs> so yeah, I like this book quite a bit. It's not the early stuff didn't really click click with me. I think that I just have no the English boarding school thing, I just can't get with it. Like, I just can't buy into it, I suppose. Yeah. But everything after that, once it got into kind of digging into deeper relationships, once it got into families and things like that, it really kind of worked. It's funny, like, I had to borrow the book from Chris because I mm-hmm. couldn't get a copy. And when he gave it to me, he, he kind of he told me a bit about the first story, Bianca. And he was just like... He's like, it's just the name Bianca, Bianca, over and over again. <laughs> oh, Bianca, she is sunshine. She is, she is the rain. Bianca, yeah, <laughs> almost like a nineteen eighties like perfume ad or something. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, so when I read that, I was like, I, I couldn't quite get into it because I just kept picturing Chris saying Bianca over and over again. <laughs> I love it. Sorry um, I ruined that for you. And it's, yeah. it's, it's probably the weakest story. I think it's so. the earliest. It's, it's the earliest and like the, the, the art's not there and you know, it's, it's, it's sweet and it's relatively well told, but it definitely kind of sets the, the mood for the rest of the book, mm-hmm. which, you know, a lot of it is just about kind of like not fitting in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, like yeah. into your family, into the world, and relationships. It set the tone for the rest of the book, but it definitely wasn't. It's probably the weakest of all the stories. Mm-hmm. What did you think of it overall? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, yeah. I, I probably, I, I got into it pretty quickly after Bianca. Like, Girl on Porch with Puppy was <laughs> so strange and such an interesting diversion in art style. Mm-hmm. like trying a bunch of stuff like it didn't all work but it was definitely like it was someone just really kind of enjoying coming up with these kind of different styles for the characters and the <laughs> the ending was just like so abrupt and like 
funny in like a Twilight Zone way. Yeah, I thought it was Twilight Zone too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never mind the dog. So good. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah the it's a, it's and then great... the drawing of the dog kind of falling out of the. Yeah, it's Blows just falling good. in midair. <laughs> so <Yeah>. good. Dope. <laughs> The characters look like I never know how to pronounce his name. Uh, Gahan Wilson. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm. there's a, a little there, bit of that. There's, I see there's, that. There's definitely some of that going on. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I thought they were all really. Almost every story had something really kind of beautiful to it, mm-hmm. or a twist I didn't see coming. Mm. Mm. Which is, I think, I think pretty essential for like a, a, a proper kind of short story to have yeah. something in there that's like, oh, okay. Mm. And sometimes it's like it's a twist, and then the twist on the twist. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, it was excellent. The storytelling it's, really. Oh, sorry, Chris. What did you think before no, no. we get into it? No, I I could go. This was this is one I have too much to say about. Actually, so it's better if you if you get into what you want to talk about. So, Iguana Girl storytelling wise, like like the the art didn't really work for me at first, but I think her storytelling is really strong. Yeah. Because mm. Iguana Girl was almost a series. Some sequences were like moments in time. Each page was like a, a different moment in time, a flash forward. And I thought that was such a cool way to show this kid growing up. Mm. And it made the yeah. story so fast paced, despite it being kind of a meditative idea of this mother who just refuses to connect to her daughter for whatever yeah. reason. Mm. Mm. Like you're just propelled along by the fact that, like, you know, you turn the page, we're on to the next scene, you know, the next humiliation, the next victory. Yeah. Oh, she was so cute. Like both versions were cute, like the iguana yeah. version and the human version. Yeah. Mm. And then Is the there... twist, like spoilers, I guess, but that her mother had kind of the fairy tale origin was really cool. Yeah. Because mm. you don't often see like the post fairy tale, like what happens after Snow White, kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, like even if the, even if that wasn't in the story, it would still be a really great story. Like the fact mm-hmm. that they had that just adds another layer to it. Um, I'm looking at it right now, and just like there's like a sequence of just four panels of Iguana Girl uh, looking over a bridge, looking in a mirror, and then holding the mirror and then tossing it, and it's just really lovely. There's some really nice little storytelling beats in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I quite liked it. I really think about these stories. I was thinking about them a lot. I was reading it a lot more closely than I did the first time. I, the first time I was reading it, I was rereading that book because I was going to meet her and I was just like, or the second time, I guess. And I was like, okay, I really got to read these. and I'm going to meet her. I'm going to interview her. Right. And I remember reading them going, Oh, Guana girl doesn't work. I remember actually really not liking that story. Mm. And I have no idea if that's something I said out loud or not on the internet back in 2010, probably did. But I remember not liking a Guana girl, but liking the rest of the book a, a lot. And now I think really giving it a closer read and reading it in a more relaxed way <laughs> this time, it not only works, but it works really well. But I think the thing that I was running up against is maybe at the core of why I put this book. And it's like, this is from later in her career. And I think that she's, you know, I think as people get older, and I think this is a big thought, so feel free to call bullshit on it. But I think as comic artists get older, things that they get good at are things like storytelling. Mm. You know what I mean? Like they've figured out how to tell a story and convey these ideas in really interesting and unique and appropriate ways. But 
we're all human and we're all breaking down every day. <laughs> and so things like your ability to draw maybe is not where it was at the height of your powers, like during that insane sci-fi story with the color and the whatever and the whatever, you know what I mean? And I think that's why Iguana Girl didn't work for me on first readers. I thought that some of the like art just felt boring. Hmm. And on rereading this again, the last story where the author, you know, chooses to give up page layouts basically and just tell things in a very straightforward like all the panels are the same size kind of a way is is the choice that maybe saves that story by having like the same sequence repeated over and over and over again because the drawing in that one especially on things like faces and things like that just isn't as strong as it is earlier in the book and it's the it's the it looks like it's one of the ones that's completed the latest the willow tree in her yeah the willow tree yeah so i think i look at it and it's like yeah, maybe where she's not the world's best draftsman like she was like at the height of her powers in her 40s or whatever, as a storyteller, she's just getting stronger and stronger. And the things that I reacted to 10 years ago when I read this are not the things that I reacted to 10 years later now when yeah. I'm reading it as someone who's yeah. in their mid-40s as opposed to in their early 30s. So I so, think that that's really interesting. So Chris, what's your favorite story in this? That's a tough one. I think the most visually accomplished is the sci-fi one. And I, the more I think about it, the more I'm just like, God, she was just at like, she's doing that 70s, like, Leiji, like maybe early 80s, Leiji Matsumoto. We're going to found Kamaket based on like being in a sci-fi fan club, sort of a shoujo style that's like very similar in how I think of work like Keiko Takamiya, who was published by Vertical. They did Towards Terror or Tutera. And Leiji Matsumoto and a couple of other mangaka. I just love the way that the three color is used there. I love the sort of echoing through time periods, but keeping the characters consistent. But the story that I actually think is the best, and it's it's such a left field pick, is the girl on the porch of the dog. I think if you had just had Bianca start that book, and then you see Bianca. Bianca. She is like the rain dancing between trees. The, the forest herself has captured Bianca's soul. It will never let it go, Bianca. Like, yeah. You had gone from that, right? So what's the one that's right after Girl on the Porch with the Dog? It's Autumn, Autumn Journey. Journey. Autumn Journey. Yeah, if you had gone like right into that, it would. it's a little bit more like, oh, this is what you think of when you think of the origins of shoujo and BL manga. You think of someone who watched a lot of English boarding school dramas deciding mm-hmm. to make comics about it. And like, yeah, there are little twists here and there. But if you hadn't had the one where it's like pure Twilight Zone craziness, it's like little girl is erased from reality for being too different. That is such a perfect inclusion in an anthology so early because it, it, it's like, oh, I have to pay attention now. Like, I can't just like think that this is going to be one thing all the way through because that ending is is not only just out of left field, it's a different planet crashing into this planet and ending the book before it goes on to the next story. So, so a serious so, polyp ending is what you're talking about? Yeah, it's the serious <laughs> yeah. polyp of that, except it's told in eight pages because manga has economy. Yeah. yeah. I have a question for you about the Matsumoto point. Yeah, yeah, the, so like I love Matsumoto, Galaxy Express, Harlock, all that stuff. But I didn't get a Leiji Matsumoto feel from A Drunken Dream. And I'm curious what aspects felt like that to you. I find a lot of poetry mm. in there in his work. Mm. And I find a lot of poetry in the work of the of people like Keiko Takamiya and even the the Phoenix that we read. Phoenix not Dawn, the other one that we were supposed to read, Future. Future. There's just like a poetry to sci-fi from that era. Mm. 
And that's what I feel about it, where it's just like, you know, people looking out spaceship windows is fully half of any book <laughs> about yeah. space yeah. by any of those people, like thinking about the enormity of it, eternity sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. And I really felt that. And like, obviously, it's a short story. So she's kind of got to get to the point more than having a, a volume length thing or a series length thing. That's what I felt. Deb, I felt like you wanted to, to jump in on, on what you felt there, too. Oh, just that like when this was created. Like this is a kind of purely fantastical, like fantasy type sci-fi. Whereas mm-hmm. I think, like I remember when I first saw Star Wars, I was like really amazed by the fact that it was, it was a, a sci-fi world that was dirty <laughs> and looked yeah, worn, yeah, like yeah. worn and lived in. Same thing with Blade Runner, that it was kind of decrepit and it looked, you know, not clean and and like it looked. Everything had a certain physical logic to it. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. this is kind of very flowy and impressionistic and, you know, the technology, you know, there's no technology really. It's just like, look, there's this giant window to see the, to see Mars because we can, yeah. you know, yeah. it's like, it doesn't have to have like this gritty sci-fi, like current day sci-fi where things have to make sense <laughs> or seem plausible. Mm-hmm. This is more yeah, like the space drama. Yeah, like space Abba, opera. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the the thrust of the sci-fi story is about like this this massive goal. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. that wasn't that wasn't the story at all. So I'm actually holding up. I'll put it in the show notes. This is Two Terra by Keiko Takamiya, who's another creator who's often lumped into the Magnuson 49ers, who is maybe technically not one of them. And this is a spread introducing sort of like a story in the middle of the book, and it's just like these like vertical slices and like ships in space and this like kind of floaty text describing what's happening and then you go to the next page and it's just like even when we introduce humans and things like that it's like this crazy grid of starships and people underneath and it's just it's just a different kind of storytelling and you don't get a lot of it in contemporary sci-fi i find like it is of a place and a time except for the people who were working in that period at the time and who are still making sort of that kind of work but it's like i don't know for people that don't know what the hell i'm talking about think of like how you saw how you felt when you saw that daft punk video for one more time where it just felt like it was a science fiction from a different place in a different time that's leiji matsumoto that's like his work he sort of designed it that's the kind of stuff that he does and that's the kind of sci-fi that i felt there and i felt like it was just like you know I know that Motohagio has like a list of works that are her her masterworks and things like that. And I know that the small, small slice of work that we've got from her in English is barely representative of her catalog, let alone the completion of what her work. But when I read that, I was just like, oh, there's gotta be there's gotta be masterworks that are like this that she's done. There's gotta be some epic sci-fi story that she's done that's everyone's floating beautifully in space doing Isn't it marginal? Like big things. I feel like sorry, go ahead. There's a couple of, of books that Rachel mentions in the foreword. Like one, one's called Marginal, which is like mm. supposed to be kind of like this masterpiece sci-fi story, like her at her mature ability sci-fi story. Then there's Otherworld Barbara, which a fanographic has put up oh. in, in two volumes, yeah. which is a real that one. I think if you like her sci-fi stuff that you see here, you'll you'll really enjoy Otherworld Barbara. But it's but it's a really head-spinning kind of like Mobius style intense sci-fi story yeah nice i like it it's really good i mean it's but it's like it's not a light read like it takes it took me like a couple days to go through it and i can whip through a manga in like an hour 
max. <laughs> Usually, the manga bursts into flames when she's done. Uh, that's so painful for me as a comic artist. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> like yeah, like I think Raina Telkemeyer said something like that, right? People go like, "Oh, I read your book in one hour," and she's like. Oh, it took me a year to draw yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> My takeaway from A Drunken Dream was this would be an image series that took place over 50 issues. Mm. Yes. Mm. Like the, 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 the fact that it was like this short story that just kind of was basically about like space and love over time and death and it felt like this massive epic that was in a short story. And uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, if, if this was done in Image, it would take someone like 50 issues to <laughs> tell this story. So are you saying that John Byrne was right about decompression? Because that's what I'm hearing. John Byrne's got some solid ideas about a lot of things. Those, speaking of cranky comics people, <laughs> it's funny. I also felt like Keiko Takamiya was a touch point for the sci-fi action in here, which is funny because Moto Hagio and Takamiya don't get along. Mm. It's yeah. kind of like an Aretha Franklin, Patti LaBelle situation. It kind of is. <laughs> I don't know enough to summarize, but check the show notes. I'm sure Chris will have something good <laughs> we'll for you up. in there. Yeah, yeah. Chris, <laughs> dig into this. You know what? If, if we can get Rachel on a manga spinning list to me, that would be really interesting. Mm. Because apparently Motohagyo just wrote a biography where, and like Rachel was basically like, oh, she's finally telling the story. She finally, you know, has, not, you know, like has, well, she didn't say it this way, but my interpretation is she has zero fucks to give anymore. So <laughs> yeah. she's just, she's just saying it. <laughs> yeah. But apparently there's some bad blood between them and, but they were roommates. And I guess, you know, like, I don't know, the friends, rivals. I I, I remember in the, my interview with her, I asked her about it, and she was very, f- she was frank but diplomatic about it. Yeah. yeah. Mm. There were like plagiarism accusations. It was a whole thing. Wow. So it was wow. some really fun show notes this time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I've got a question for the the manga experts here All right. today. Lay it on me. Page 111. Does that look like a drawing from Paradise Kiss to you? There are no mm. page numbers on this damn thing. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wait, no. right oh it's in the inside. Ah. Yeah. Can one of you hold it up for me so I can see? I'm gonna try and find it. We all we all will. Oh, that oh, one. Wow. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Because something I was thinking about throughout this book, I mentioned like not knowing who the heck this was for, because some stories seemed really sophisticated mm. for a shoujo audience. Not mm. not that shoujo audiences are unsophisticated, but like there's a step above, like Jose, you know. I think they and are. Some felt more stories. like Jose, yeah, yeah. And this drawing, I was like, oh, first of all, I mean, this is from like more or less now, mm. but it felt so modern and like something that someone would have seen when they were a kid, and mm. kind of like filtered through their influences. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Mm. I think there's stuff. I think that's the thing when we talk about people like this we're talking about foundational manga creators. It's one of the ideas that has most stuck with me that we talked about on the Tezuka episode. And it was Tezuka grew up making manga and never having gotten to read Tezuka. He got to read other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He got to sort of pull in things from novelists and things like that, but he didn't, there was no literary canon of manga that existed sort of before he started making his manga. So he's just going out there and stumbling through stuff. I think, you know, someone like Ayazawa, she has clearly read the hits you know what i mean yeah. like yeah. he's a shoujo mangaka that has like developed such a unique personal style that's based on 
like generations of of like reading of manga that's based on manga that's based on manga and you see a lot of that now in manga as well and i don't think that's i think that's always cited as a bad thing like oh it's a photocopy of a photocopy but it's like no sometimes it brings out really interesting things that's how you get the sort of like gnarly bits of people's mm-hmm. styles you know what i mean like if you're not ever bringing in any other outside influences yeah it can kind of get up its own ass a little bit but like yeah i think that manga uh, that have like ingested all of this manga that's come before them and then turned out something afterwards usually can yield some pretty awesome results like i think ayazawa draws like ayazawa and maybe no one else but it's kind of awesome to see a, an illustration like that that clearly looks like it could have been done by ayazawa at yeah, some it's like point in the ballpark yeah. in the conversation yeah. i should say that particular story Hanch and half god like mm-hmm. I may like it the most yeah, in the book, mm. but the art is the worst. Ooh, tell me more. That's fair. I mean, it's just, I mean, there's just a lot of kind of bad drawings in it and, and weird choices. It's much less <laughs> elegant than the other ones too. There's a lot less like yeah, flagrant isn't a word. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, like on one Oh seven, the storytelling is fine, but almost every panel has bad drawing elements to it. I'll hold it up for Chris. Oh, like that, that one? The, yeah, yeah. the hallway scene is just so poorly drawn with like weird effects added to it that don't help it at all. The drawing of the doctor at the bottom is like bad. The drawing of the door is bad. Like with done with like a weird thick chunky line. And there, there's so much in that story that just like kind of puts me off visually. But the story mm. itself feels very complex about like yeah your relationship to family and beauty and sacrifice and ignorance and like there's a lot going on in that story probably more than any of the stories mm. and drunken dream Hanshin and I think the one before drunken dream uh, autumn something autumn journey there's autumn journey yeah. autumn journey. Oh no, Marie uh, ten years later. Yeah, yeah, that one. Like they were all drawn in the same year, and I would like to know wow. the order, like when they came out. I mean, I could Google it yeah. after the podcast is done, but like they're so different. Yeah, yeah. Mm-mm. So it looks like it's a drunken dream was drawn for an art book in 1980, and then Hanshin and Angel Mimic were drawn in '84. And then Marie, 10 years later, was drawn in, it says 77 on Wikipedia, but wow. I don't know if, I don't know what it says in the book. We'll figure it out. Maybe this is the kind uh, of They're all 385 in the book. Yeah. So it might be publication yeah. dates yeah. or maybe uh, Tonkabon dates. Yeah, it might be in the That's date when it was collected in a collection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. There, there's, some, there's some bad drawings in Marie 10 years later, for sure. That was, that was one of that. I think that was the weirdest story. Mm-hmm. about the depressed girl i thought i would like it more than i did by the end of it if that makes I, sense i liked it it's funny because like by the end of it i liked it a lot mm-hmm. but throughout i'm just like oh, where are they going with this but then like i kind of realized towards the end it was really summing up a feeling that that i've been kind of having a little bit of lately which is looking back on your weird friendships in the 20s where everything seemed limitless mm-hmm. and possible mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that that final page is just such an interesting stylistic choice, and it it feels like the memory of friendship of a time. Mm-hmm. That 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 kind of hazy line work, the radiating out of it. Mm-hmm. 
I've got a lot of amazing memories of being in my like twenties in Toronto with my group of friends where you're all each paying $200 for a room in a giant house and like just wasting our days away, but not really like there's so much potential and possibility there and fun and laughter and, and yeah, and then you know you get older and everything uh, dissolves and crushes down on you. And, uh, Life happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. right yeah, right. but it it really it really summed up the feeling of it. I I thought mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so. I kind of came around on it by the end. Yeah, these are definitely like you can definitely see the evolution of how she thinks about human relationships. Yeah, mm. as she grows up, like it's like the first two stories are kind of like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting and melodramatic if this happened and oh you know like you know, like the like the girl with the puppy is kind of like yeah you know it's kind of like a little it's like a little middle finger to people's people conformity mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but then when you get into the stuff and then the you know the the, the drunken dream story is kind of like ah sci-fi you know what of this thing about reincarnation and you know making lo- you know love that is doomed and things like that whereas when you get into like iguana girl and hanshin that's when she starts to really dive into, I guess it, it feels like more, more complex or I guess uncomfortable. Melancholy. Yeah. yeah. Feelings yeah. about relationships, right? Where it's more, it's, it's not like there are any enemies or anyone evil and it's mm. not like there's any easy answers, but it's like one thing that really struck me when I, in my conversation with her and this is in the interview as well, was that, her parents were not supportive of her com- of her drawing comics, like they were oh, act- they were actively is, dismissive yeah. of it, to the point that even when she won this award from the emperor, the first female cartoonist to get this, it's like it's like a knighthood, frankly, it's a huge, <laughs> huge honor. Her parents, she told me, were still like, "That's nice." What? it's not like you got it for being a doctor yeah exactly yeah like and it's and but the way that she described it and and it's like and i read that in iguana girl right where it's a sense of yeah and in her interview she kind of says this too it's like i just came to the realization that it wasn't that i was and i'm paraphrasing but not that i was necessarily a bad person or not worthy of love but that my mother just wasn't capable of loving me yeah yeah Mm. it's interesting you made me look up Wikipedia here, Deb, and the stories that you cite as being sort of more mature and digging in, like those are ones where she was working for a pretty standard, she was working for like Basatsu Shoujo and then Shoujo Friend for like some of the early stuff. The Girl on the Porch with Puppy with the Twilight Zone one was actually in Calm. Oh, like, makes sense. Sci-Fi Gekigo magazine, yeah. which cool. is interesting. But she starts working on Hanshin and Angel Mimic and Iguana Girl. She starts working on Petite Flower, which was like an older aimed shoujo manga maybe or magazine maybe before there was really jose Mm. magazines and things like that so it's interesting to see that she moves like those are from those are more mature stories that were in a more mature magazine Mm. and even a drunken dream was actually a completely standalone story which is why it's in color it was drawn for one of her art books from the 1980s so it's it's interesting to see not only how her work changes over time, but I think it's interesting that it changes depending on what venue it was in ah, and yeah. like what she could maybe get away with. Mm-hmm. We think about manga as having this kind of unlimited freedom, but it's really, really defined by what magazine you're in in a lot of ways. Like where yeah. not everything she's doing here, like Marie uh, Marie, ten years later, was actually in Big Comics Original, mm-hmm. which is like the uh, like a seinen manga magazine for like for dudes, and that's like oh. Okay, it's from a dude's point of view. Yeah, it it's makes about sense. romance mm-hmm. lost. It's like a sad 
sad story. Yeah. So all of a sudden, like it changes again. It's fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me about Tezuka's com magazine? You said that Girl and Portrait Puppy ran in. Yeah, so that was that was actually the one that serialized uh, Phoenix. Okay, it came up when we uh, when we covered Phoenix. He actually launched that magazine to launch the like version of Phoenix that became the version of Phoenix that we got before he had run some like short stories that he didn't quite capture what he wanted to with the Phoenix story. So he launched that as a rival to the big Gekiga magazine at the time, which was Garo magazine. And he's like, Oh, why are these people getting like, I'm out selling them 10 to one, but why are they getting all this press and all this buzz? Tezuka was notoriously really a jealous dude. Yeah. So he's like, I'll show them. I'll launch my own Gekiga magazine. My own art comics. I can do art comics too. (laughs) And it's why I think, he didn't know what he was doing entirely. And that's why Phoenix one has all these weird shifts in tone that like chip was talking about. It's like, Oh, they go from like murdering and eating the babies to like a funny fisticuffs thing, like with like dancing horses. And like, he just didn't, he had never done a, a book for adults before. I think by the time you get around to future, it's a lot more consistent. And then later volumes are even more consistent. Yeah. But Calm magazine had, just like an all-star cast and so little of it's been translated but i know so we all visited the shotaro ishinomori museum when we were in japan shotaro ishinomori created sort of a bunch of classic important manga characters including like common rider and like power rangers among other things so his big story that was ran in calm was called june and it's the one about the boy who is drawing and it becomes this like almost phantasmagorical thing about this boy who's drawing there's like a statue i i don't i don't know if you uh, saw it but where he was like drawing and he was drawing like ishinomori at the ishinomori museum mm-hmm. but it's like it's basically just he wants to tell these silent stories and that's the kind of magazine that calm was like he's like anything goes as long as it's like for grown-ups and like pushing at the boundaries of manga expression and gekiga and real realism and so it's a bunch of people that have been doing commercial comics for a really long time you know trying their hand at that Versus Gato, which was other than, especially maybe 10 years in, and I'm not the world's foremost expert on Garo. I think it's Ryan Holmberg, at least in English, but at least 10 years in, it's people who had never made comics, who were making comics in doujinshi and like things for themselves, who had read all this stuff and been like, no, I want to tell this other story. And so there's just like a, a rawness to the work in Garo a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And even Garo, it's, it feels like it started from a place of being really dissatisfied with mainstream comics. Like it, it's like, started as a response which is you know when you're running oh what's that what's the big gato title that launched i'm uh, kamui thanks legend of kamui where it's just like we're going to tell this this classic you know <laughs> japanese tale but it's really going to be about the student movement and protesting against unfair government stuff in the middle of like you know the riots and things like that and it became this like flashpoint so does that end? that's a lot yeah, <laughs> no that makes perfect not sense a short answer because Basically, I wanted to know the context around it because I realized Girl on Porch with Puppy, more than anything, reminds me, like, this could be a Richard Corbin story from the 70s. Mm. Absolutely. It would be drawn completely differently, of course, but the kind of, <laughs> like, you're in this setting, like, kind of, you don't know what's going on, and there's a twist ending, and it's about society in the end. Like, that's mm-hmm. such a 70s underground uh, to me. It feels yeah. like, knowing now that it was in, like, this kind of sci-fi-ish magazine, it feels like she had this story, and then it was like, oh, I guess the last page... It's yeah, sci-fi. <laughs> it, it's a little bit of a shame that they didn't twist explain it's sci-fi. That in, th- yeah. Explain that context in this book. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it mm-hmm. just it gives you a, a, a copyright and a year, but it doesn't explain, you know, the, like the what the context that we're talking about now. 
Mm-hmm. That's what the fan press is for. I mean, I that's why so. we're here, right? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, it really is. And it's this is such like a cool trip down, not memory lane, like manga history because of that, because there are so many different magazines and styles and eras represented and like ac- across 10 stories. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I asked Chris what his favorite was. Uh, Deb, what was your favorite story in this? I I kind of have a weakness for Iguana Girl just because... Mm. It kind of like pulls into this, it it tells this interesting story from different points of view. Like at, at for, for a good deal of the story, you think she really is a girl with an iguana head. And then yeah. there's a point where it says, here's what her sister sees. And here's what her classmates mm. see. And that her body. Dysmorphia. Yeah. Is yeah. just in her imagination. But it's such mm-hmm. a powerful mm-hmm. metaphor for a, a girl dealing with growing up and being told that she's less than all her life mm. and still finding happiness somehow. Yeah. You know, like this, it's still kind of sad and surreal, but, but at, at the main theme at the end is this sense of, uh, I'm at peace with this. Yeah. I could, I could, I mean, I found like I really relate to it, especially the scene where her mother is angry at her for getting 97% on the test instead of a hundred. Same. Except mm. my mom was upset that I got 59%. <laughs> but other than that it's very similar but it still stings it still <laughs> i remember stings. it like yesterday <laughs> yeah chris mentioned that being a very like mundane looking story storytelling wise and mm. i agree but i think that's part of the part of the storytelling i guess the mundanity of it mundanity mm. of it it's, i should be clear yeah. i liked it a lot more this read through i actually yeah. really really like that story now. it was there's so many cute drawings of her yeah it's almost like she just did a normal slice of life story, but there's a lizard girl in it. You know, <laughs> it's really it's really accomplished. I think I think it's it's the one story that hits it out of the park on the writing and the art. Mm-hmm. I want to say I disagreed, Chip, with something you said earlier. I don't think it would have worked without the framing sequence. I think the framing sequence is the second twist that really makes it work. Because without the framing sequence, she just has sort of body dysmorphia and she learns to overcome it and be happy, right? But no. with the with the actual framing sequence, she really like they're like it's in within the context of the story, her mother really was cursed. Mm. Her really mother really was an iguana that was like maintaining human form through whatever. And it's that changes that from yeah, you've got to put up with shit and you know, the things that you carry with you can affect your how you view yourself to People really are different, and that's actually okay. It doesn't like this is a curse, but it's become your life, and it doesn't have to be a curse. It's about what you do with that and how you move forward in the world. And I think it becomes a more complicated message that is better in my my feelings because it's got this framing sequence that says, "No, no, she really is at least part like magic iguana in the story," <laughs> which doesn't like I'm saying this. It doesn't play on the story at all. You don't you don't need to, do, but like what it says about the character and what it says about her gives you a much richer message. And I'm not one that needs messages in their comics, but like, I am so happy that I caught it this time around because I didn't the first time. And I think I didn't appreciate the story because of it. I suppose. I mean, I, I, I like the twist and I, I think it added, but also ending it on her seeing her mother's dead body and pulling mm. the sheet and seeing that she's an iguana. Like that's that what that's, that's a great what's, twist. That's what's that's what's created this <laughs> mm-hmm. this feeling mm-hmm. in her. Like I don't know. I, I I see that as a hopeful ending as well. But like, mm. yeah, the fact that like 
she sees that her mother actually kind of suffered from this and was inflicting it upon her all this time. And also by that point, the character is already like better. Yeah, she's adjusted. Yeah. Well adjusted. Yeah. yeah. Because some people are iguanas and some people are bulls and some people are birds and some people are just people and it doesn't, it's not a big deal. And I think that that's, I, I liked that part of it. Follow up. Follow up question, Chris. What animal am I? You are Chip Zdarsky. Wow. I like it. Hmm. I am something of a. Now animal. he wants to Thank change you. his answer. I did think that the bull boy was cute. Oh, of course. <laughs> I mean, we all saw that coming. Yeah. yeah. And also the, the now, yes. fellow from Autumn Journey. Yeah, that's not a like, twist. Yeah, no wonder you can't get over your dead girlfriend. It's because you're secretly gay. I do have one last point on <laughs> Iguana Girl. Like, I like hearing what all of you took from it because I think we all got a different positive message from it. Mm. Because for me, it was about, like, kind of the way we pass down things to our kids, our own trauma, mm-hmm. our own issues. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. the mother was afraid of being ugly. And when her daughter was born and looks like an iguana, she's like, oh, no, like, this is my nightmare. And she can't take it like at all. And yeah. so the daughter kind of is forced to find her own way, like through baseball, through friends, all this kind of thing. And in the end, it's basically like a journal of my iguana mother where she comes to peace <laughs> with that's so true yeah there's such a beautiful panel of her holding her child just mm-hmm. really tenderly yeah that's just like it's just, it's just so beautiful and when she freaks out when she sees her mother's face like that's such a good moment too yeah yeah it's it's, it's a great story mm-hmm. david what's your favorite story i think iguana girl I think that's the one where like, as I was reading it, I was like, Oh, this is, this is the one like, this is clicking now, you know, the early stuff, like the English boarding school, like, you know, Johan, Johan, whatever, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) But this kind of like deep emotional family stuff in a vaguely modern setting worked for me. We haven't really talked about angel mimic. Oh yeah. That's that one's, I think very short, very traditional Jose manga. Yeah, like you know, this romance between a teacher and a student, but the little tr- the the reveal at the end is like, oh, that's why she's that's why she tried to commit suicide. You know, that's yeah. why she's so troubled. Yeah, I think I would have liked it better as a novel or something, because that's how I was reading it. I was like, oh, this is just a really tedious illegal romance. I was like, <laughs> this is really the shoujo manga one. This is a fantasy. <laughs> And then it was very much not a fantasy by the end. Like it was touching, but it didn't really land with me the way Iguana Girl or Hanshin did. Yeah, I agree. Mm. I liked how by the end of that story, she just kind of like looked like an old lady, like the way she was like draped in the (laughs) shawl and stuff. There's something about her style as it progressed through the story that I don't know if that was conscious or not to make her just seem older and older by the end. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that was interesting. You're, so you're saying about Willow Tree? The Willow Tree, I really enjoyed reading because it reminded me of one of my favorite Usagi Yojimbo stories, which I think is just oh. called Jizo. Oh, yeah? And oh, but the Jizo statues. Ah. Yeah, where it's the same kind of force, like the same perspective, several panels. And it's basically a statue, like watching like bandits come by and like ravage, ravishing an area. Then Usagi killing the bandits. And like by the end of the story, the statue's smiling because the like person the statue is for has gotten vengeance essentially like they've been laid to rest and it's really sweet and i like that kind of like we're just going to focus laser tight on this one very 
specific area, you know. Hmm. It's focusing on fashion, I think, in that one that it, that the other works show an appreciation of fashion, but that one is like it feels very contemporary in the time. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like we're going to show what people are wearing in the same way that the Autumn Journey one, the boy going to see his favorite author dot 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 <laughs> feels like the perfect like i have i have researched the hell out of this by watching all the movies about this area and this place and this time and so it feels like a hundred percent set there like yeah. it shows that she can do you know she could do crazy shoujo stuff like or shoujo like sci-fi stuff just like off the top of her head or she could do this like period piece or she could do something ultra contemporary and everyone's dressed in like whatever the hottest fashions were at the time like i don't know just draped in shawls all the time but like with beautiful (laughs) little patterns and things or actually that story in particular felt more of a place in a time than maybe anything else to me Mm -hmm. like when there's that shot where the this we don't know he's a teacher yet is like washing his face in the sink with the towel around his head and his head's hair's kind of messed up and it's just like that is the most 1980s manga illustration i have literally ever seen <laughs> like every single 80s manga and anime has this shot in it and it all looks exactly like this like it almost doesn't even look like her style it looks it looks like kind of like morphs into like a little bit of yu yu Hakusho, and then a little bit of, of takahashi and then a, yeah. like a little bit of like other 80s contemporary sex comedy like romantic comedy manga just for like that bit and then when they draw him again when he's a teacher hundred percent into jose like protagonist yeah. like like male love interest style like it, they don't even look like they're in the same story or the same person well, they don't even act like they're okay. in the same like <laughs> that was the one thing i didn't really didn't like about the story was just the fact that like his personality shift was just so great mm. that i was just like I, I wasn't i wasn't really buying any of it mm. yeah <laughs> the child who comes I, home I get that mm. oh we haven't talked about child yeah, who yeah. comes home yeah, I loved it pretty much every page, but I don't have much to say about it. It was just like, mm-hmm. if I can use competent as like a really good descriptor for a story, yeah, it was just like effortlessly competent and really engaging. I yeah, I caught the twist right away, so the story yeah. kind of was just like, okay, I'm just kind of following this through to the end, mm-hmm. and like seeing all the hoops they jump through to try and hide it from the reader was just a little distracting. <laughs> Like she goes, eh, and then I I say this every day because I want to remember him, what kind of thing. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I think it's good that they did Sixth Sense twenty years before Sixth Sense. Yeah. That was pretty fun. Yeah. I actually forgot the twist of that one, and it wasn't until about halfway through that I actually started to be like, oh right. And if you read it from the beginning, knowing what the like, if you reread that story when you get to the end, yeah, it's so obvious. And maybe if you're a, detective like chip or a master uh, storyteller well, <laughs> master storyteller chip Zdarsky. there were there, yeah there were, there were two things like the first shot of ghost child running past mother mm-hmm. the, there's just there's a difference in the style there like they never use kind of a black on that character so as soon oh. as he runs by her i'm like oh wait is he and when the brother towards the bottom says i'm home i'm like no one would say i'm home when their little brother just ran ahead of them Mm. so those are the things that that made me figure it out i'm super smart yeah Mm. for me it was on the next page there's that awkward pause where she says now you no playing and the brother kind of looks at her and then looks back to his homework yeah Mm. so yeah Yeah, we're too we're too smart for this 
<laughs> Finally, a book that I'm too smart for. <laughs> Effortless is a really good descriptor because it does just like it is just like really good comics, but yeah. it's, it's not. Yeah, there's some beautiful. There's some beautiful stuff in it. Yeah, I want to give a little shout out to Rachel for the translation because I think she puts a lot of care into um, trying to trying to capture the tone of Motohakio's yeah. work. There, I don't know. I mean. It's it's largely invisible to me. Mm. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was a good translation, but I mean, it's hard to tell. Like you're saying, yeah. it's it's kind of invisible. There was nothing that anyone said that I was like, oh, that was a little bit weird. It, it all felt like it was of of the piece. Like it felt integral to the work, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. was there anything you read that made you go, oh, that's pretty good? So sometimes we focus on things that clang in translation as a way of judging it. Like this doesn't fit, this doesn't work. But sometimes it's about like little turns of phrase that are very smooth mm-hmm. that you don't skip over them, but you still notice them. Like mm-hmm. in The Old Metamorphosis, I think at one point someone says, my eyes were bigger than my stomach. And I'm like, oh, like that's it. Like this is good writing because this is what this type of character would say. Mm-hmm. Was there yeah. anything like this, like that in this for you, you three? <laughs> Nothing that really struck, that struck me as great localization you know like Mm -hmm. oh that was a great choice or or oh this this um i I got a sense of like what awkward phrase this would have otherwise been in japanese yeah (laughs) but and then they just like they they didn't take the extra step to go beyond the literal translation into a a conversational translation you know like Mm -hmm. tadaima right like or uh tadaima means when you come home like i'm home and you know or like, or itadakimasu, itadakimasu before you eat and gochisosame deshita is like after. But, you know, mm-hmm. people go, thanks for the eats, you know? <laughs> like, like yeah. I've seen all kinds of ways people try to localize that. Mm-hmm. Gambare is maybe the worst example of that. Guts! Like, oh. like, yeah, guts. <laughs> Just try your best. <laughs> Here, here's, a, here's the best way I can explain it. This is a... This is an anthology. It was edited by Rachel and, and translated, like where the stories were chosen by Rachel. And according to Wikipedia, Rachel ran like a poll on like a a, a fan group of Motohagios on in, in Japan. <laughs> oh, no kidding! What are, the, what are the best? What are the best Motohagio short stories? And then sort of chose from that and from their own their own favorites, right? Mm. And it's it wasn't in, I, I didn't pick up on it until David gave his impression of the book, and it's like, yeah, it's about all the stories are about people. Maybe it was Deb. I apologize Mm. if it was you, but it was like, it's all about people who are like, don't quite fit in, Mm. in the real world and who are like, and I, and, and and who, you know, find a way, even if they're, or like, or are zapped out of existence, but like, but these people that are just like, just don't quite fit into their time and place. And I think that that's an interesting thing because it's, yeah, I mean, almost all of the manga stories sort of are on that theme, except for maybe the very last one. Mm. And is that because Rachel chose those stories to exemplify that theme? Or is that a theme that runs through literally all of Moto Hagio's work and you can't get away from that theme? And it's that. I think it's the latter, honestly. Like, I, I haven't read enough to, to know for sure. Or all, all their most successful pieces. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But that could be the thing. Like maybe she did try to tackle other themes, and it just didn't work as well. But I, nobody but I liked her that, superhero right? comics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no <one> liked her. 
So in the same way I can't tell about that, I can't tell about the translation. Yeah, it's like, yeah. okay. there's no way for me to know without having read both. And if I did read both and I was that fluent and I could compare the two, I probably wouldn't go in on the translator if I didn't like their translation because yeah, that yeah. would be kind of a shitty thing to do. They, they did a whole book. We wouldn't have got it if they like didn't pitch this, this book and this and do this work and whatever. So like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's tough to say. It's tough to say. I have two that I'll share and then we can, I'll stop talking. But there was no, one no. when the in Iguana Girl when the father asked, "Are these maternity blues?" Where I was like, "Oh, that's like uh, totally what like a desperate dad would pull out of his pocket after yeah, his wife yeah. throws a baby across the room." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's such a dismissive like not postpartum depression is it maternity yeah. blues? <laughs> <laughs> you got a case of the baby sads? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, you've got a localized manga chip. That's that's good. Yeah, that's super good. And in the story before that, the angel story, when the guy says, you want the wings for the child, I was like, oh, like that's really good. Yeah. Even yeah. though that, that story wasn't quite, you know, fully in my bag, I thought that was both great writing on Hagio's part and a great localization in mm. terms of both not getting it, in terms of staying out of the way of the original work, but also enhancing it at the same time. Yeah. Mm. Like just something about the curtness of it yeah there were there are a lot of nice like in a lot of the stories nice little kind of poetic bits that you know i have no idea how much was the mm -hmm. original how much was the translation but there's but it's good stuff yeah. you know what there's one part that stuck out in a negative way and i think it wasn't the fault of the translator i think it was the fault and it was in angel it was the angel story angel mimic where where like you're finding and you finally find out why she's so depressed and you think it like Maybe there's something bigger than her family just being away or whatever. And she has this like declarative statement about having had an abortion and how it's like coughing up her head. And you're like, I'm sure that was like a huge revelation in a girl's comic in the 1970s. Like that would have been a God, big yeah. deal to have that story and to have her say that. But it is so clunky the way she like exposits that information mm. in that moment. And I think it would have as a translator. I think that's actually how it was in the Japanese. Mm -hmm. I actually think that's a hundred percent how it was in the Japanese. And as a translator, as an editor, I would want to soften that and make it more conversational and make it more how that conversation might actually have gone at the time or even go today. But I think as a translator, you have to, you sort of owe it to the work. It's like, Oh, that was dropped in there because that's a bombshell moment, yeah. especially in the time of when it's written. So it read as clunky to me, but it read as perfectly translated. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like that was something where I was like, I wish that this sequence could have been handled a little bit differently because you know, it's a sensitive issue and it's, presented almost like it's a little shock value but that would have been at the time right like like 79 it wasn't or whatever that a was 2008 story mm -hmm. angel mimic according yeah. to wikipedia which again we are all taking this with a grain of salt because it's <laughs> wikipedia angel mimic november 1984 sorry interesting okay so the way the book is organized for the listeners who maybe don't have it is the first three stories are from 19, copyright 1997 the next three are 85 then the next three are 2008, and then it closes on 2007. Oh, uh, the that is not accurate. Yeah, at yeah. All. yeah. That doesn't give you the context of, of when these, these stories were actually created and published. It's the copyright yeah. date. So I think that's maybe, maybe too bad. Like some of, in some of mm -hmm. the essay, it mentions you know, dates of, of some works, but not specifically as it relates. doesn't give the context for each story. It's more like mm. a context of 
Motohakyo's career and, you know, the years that her her most significant noteworthy works came out, right? Versus mm. here's when this work came out and it, it was in this magazine for this audience. But that's why you listen to manga splaining. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we will copy and paste from the Wikipedia and include that in the show notes. Give $2 to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're, they're begging right now. Please give them some money. Give us $3. So, yeah. yeah. This was a good chat i think we've we've talked about a drunken dream for a little while does anyone have any closing thoughts i feel like i've like i've said more than i need to say about it but i i really liked it i'm glad glad you all liked it too anybody else got anything they want to add the guana girl has cute outfits <laughs> <laughs> i'd say uh i give it a 97 percent. why couldn't it just be a hundred percent need to work mm, harder need to work harder could be a hundred percent gotta give it 110 <laughs> yep in order to get a hundred yeah of course yeah even though this book was out of print for quite a while, I'm really glad that they did a second printing. I think that's. Mm. I think Fantagraphics deserves some credit for that because you know, a classic shoujo manga is not always an easy sell or not a sure bet. And they put out a really lovely edition. Even the second edition has the, the schmancy gold stamping on it. Oh mm. yeah! Shout out to Adam Grano who did the design, who also does yeah. JoJo's for me and all the Tayo Matsumoto stuff for Viz. Nice. And also that, you know, that they've since then published two volumes of Otherworld Barbara. They also published the first volume of Poe Clan, and hopefully the second volume will come out soon. Hard to promise. And, you know, also shout out to Denpa because they're publishing Little Leo, which is her, it's kind of like Iguana Girl style because it's about a, a little cat, a cat who wants to be, wants to find a job. But it's not like she's sweet home. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a cat that stands on its two feet. So. They're also republishing They Were 11, right? So Are they really? Mm-hmm. They're doing, Denpa's going to do They Were 11? Uh-huh. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So I, I'm really grateful because Hotbotahogu, I think, is a really important and interesting creator. She's incredibly smart and her stories are so special. I'm really glad to see that more of it is being available in English. It's not going to, it's not what I would recommend to a new margarita. It's a little dense. It's a little hard to get into sometimes, but I think it's very rewarding. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, thanks to Fanographics for doing this instead of publishing some Sailor Moon crap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, leave the easy money on the table for someone else. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I, I actually have—I forgot. I actually have one final word on this book. Bianca. <laughs> Bianca. We'll be right back. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. And we're back from what was hopefully a very satisfying break for all of us. Today, we are going to skip question and answer session yet again. We're sorry about that. But we just keep talking about the books we're talking about, and it just keeps going on and on. Please do keep sending in your questions on you know, Twitter, direct message, Instagram, 
email us, whatever you want to do. We are reading these questions as they come in, but we just got to every once in a while produce an episode. Yeah, I've got a mostly Q&A episode planned in the future, so we'll see how it goes. Perfect, perfect. But what we are doing this week is choosing our next round of books. Uh, Those of you who've been following along at home, you've been noticing we've been picking every two weeks, even though we always pick three to four books at a time. And it's just because of the manga shortage. I'm going to be completely honest with you. The printing shortage, it's harder and harder for people to get copies of books that we recommend in any kind of time period. Like, even though Drunken Dream was reprinted, Chip still couldn't get a copy in time for this week's thing. So I lent him mine. I'm also very lazy. After this week... (laughs) We're gonna do four. We're gonna we're gonna do it every four episodes or so. So we'll be we'll be way ahead. So if you're reading along with us, a thank you so much, and b don't worry, we're going to stop giving you books to buy for at least a month. They <laughs> make great Christmas show. gifts. But they anything we've reco- yeah. reviewed? Well, not anything we've reviewed. Yeah. Uh, actually, you know what? On Monksplaining.com, look forward to the books that we actually recommend <laughs> coming soon. Uh, we already checked it out. It's pretty good. Anyway, so this week we are recommending, we are picking new books, and they will be after our next batch of books. We colluded. We colluded this week to what? maybe pick books on a theme. And in, I don't know why we this we ended up colluding this way, but we did. And it was pick some classic manga and it's what a perfect time to talk about that since we reviewed a classic manga this week in a drunken dream by motohagio and so we're going to pick some some classics i feel like a lot of the, the the reprint projects don't get all the love in the world that they deserve because people clamor for them and then you're lucky to sell two thousand copies so anything we can do to help turn the tide anything we can help to do to help bring this rich history of manga back into print in north america and make it successful i'm on board with but i'm not going to go first I am going to pick David because I just listened <laughs> to the episode where David made me go first three times. Uh, in a no, row. actually, Chris, Chris, could you go first? No, I cannot. I cannot go first. Chip, do you want to go? <laughs> yeah, I can go first. It's okay. I will forgive Chris and get him back <laughs> on the next episode that I host, which I think is next week. So I don't know why you're Damn, throwing fantastic. shots today. David, um, <laughs> just knock this one out of the park. Just do it. Do it this do one it. is by a manga creator named Go Nagai. He is. Oh. Very classic. He's known for doing a lot of like giant robot stuff, lots of like superhero stuff, that kind of thing. And this one is called Devil Man. And it is 100% what it sounds like. It's the story of a high school student named Akira Fudo who absorbs the powers of a demon and becomes Devil Man and basically goes out and hunts demons using the power of demons with his friend Ryo, who does drugs and has a machine gun for the most part. <laughs> it's a. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, it's a hot mess. There's a fantastic anime adaptation called Devilman Crybaby. But what we're going to be focusing on is the Devilman hardcover that Seven Seas put out, Devilman the Classic Collection, Volume 1. All right. And it's a bit longer than most manga that we've read so far. I think it's about mm. 600 pages, but it's one volume. Mm. Okay, you're, you're <laughs> losing me a bit, but all right, all right. And it's like it, you'll know if you like it or not within eight pages. Like, it's that crazy. So I think we'll have some fun. All right. Okay, good. Would this be the first manga that Chip doesn't finish? Because after eight pages, he's like, forget this. <laughs> Let's find out. Yeah. Was a, Chris, was how about you? Excellent, concise pitch, David. Chris? <laughs> As host, I would like to pick Deb now. Deb. All right. <laughs> what manga would you like to recommend? I don't know how As that host. became the rule, but anyways. I believe it is. <laughs> well, as much as I would have loved to pick another classic shoujo manga to offset devil man <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> that's not so easy <laughs> because there isn't that much of it out there 
Mm. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to go with something that uh, maybe has some personal relevance for all of us. That is Common Rider by Shotaro Ishinomori. We, in our trip to Japan, we went to the Shotaro Ishinomori Mangatan in Ishinomaki, where there was a huge exhibit that was, I'd say, 50% Common Rider. <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh, poor Chip, do you get this? Does, does this make sense to you that this, this one character or this one franchise, which is basically the equivalent of like all of the Batman family, <laughs> like, <laughs> like the most popular like superhero franchise in Japan, that it's basically about a guy who is, has superpowers. He rides a motorcycle. He has a mask, which is common means mask, but he looks like a grasshopper. He has superpowers. He has amazing motorcycle. He's beating a terrorist organization that's going to destroy the world. Though, even though actually he is part, his origin is because he was genetically mutated by that secret organization. It's basically like Shotaro Ishinomori is like the Jack Kirby of Japan. Wham, bam, thank right, you, ma'am. Right. Lots of action. And it's mm-hmm. um, coming out, the first, the hardcover version is coming out from Seven Seas in mid-December. So we will get, by the time we talk about it, it will be barely a month old in print. Nice. Maybe the nice folks at Seven Seas will even provide us with a review copy. Chip <gasps> <laughs> can have one, your book on his shelf. But I just wanted to, uh, I wanted to throw that out to you because I thought, you know, we, when we talk about superhero comics in Japan, right, we talk like, oh, My Hero Academia, we talk about my One Punch Man. And I want to say that I think Shotaro Ishimori is just an amazing creator and I think you would appreciate that on both an artistic level and on a, I guess, the, the, what superheroes look like in Japan. Hmm. Uh, I will say visiting that museum with you guys made me feel like I was losing my mind. <laughs> oh, really? How's that? It's, it's just, it's so weird to go through a place dedicated to something that, you know, frankly, is quite juvenile mm-hmm. that I don't know anything about. <laughs> <laughs> like you go around the corner and it's these characters i have no idea what's going on the context but people have like painstakingly and lovingly created 3d versions of them for everyone to enjoy i'm like what who is this what is that monkey character <laughs> yeah. who is this old man i don't know it's very very weird it's a very surreal thing to go through an entire basically yeah children it's like a yeah it's, it's that weird thing it's like it's a children's museum it kind of I, I, it's a museum for a children's character, but it's sort of like how if there was a Superman museum, yeah, like a lot of it would be for kids, but not necessarily all for kids. It's kind of like that. I know, and it, it's funny. Like it just made me really realize like how a lot of the things I love in North America are for children, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you don't quite get it until you see something in another country that is yeah. like also that way. Because I'm just like, what? Why are we going through this place? It's for kids. And I'm like. Oh, okay. I get it. Because I would do exactly the same thing for Superman or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Will we get sued if I use the Common Rider theme song on that episode? Nah. Uh, people are copyright claiming <laughs> podcasts yet. Maybe the YouTube version. I think it's a it's a it's a good use of all the amazing podcast money we're making off this to fight it <laughs> fight it legally. Nice. Done yep. and done. I think that that would be funny because, oh, you know what we could do? We could say that we don't accept correspond- legal correspondence by email, and then they need to send us a letter, and then you'd have like, letterhead, letterhead <laughs> and with a legal thread on it, and you could put that on your wall. That'd be really worth it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
I love that. You are thinking uh, five uh, steps ahead. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, I can call on Chris. And yeah, Chris. Chris your pick. And Chris, just so you know, I've got. I'm, I'm doing a countdown. You've, <laughs> ooh, got, you've, ooh, ooh. <laughs> you've got one minute, starting now. So for my pick, I am stretching the bounds of classic manga. And if Deb, David, if you want to shut this down and be like, "No, you need an older one," I'm totally okay with that. But I realized. I can't think of any other way we'd ever read Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind by Hayao Miyazaki because I would never go and pick it because it's such a weird thing to like, it's such an important work, but it's such a weird thing. But 1982. So I feel like that's kind of classic. How do you guys feel about that in the classic sense? Yeah, let's do it. It's fine with me. I just worry that can Chip get it? Yeah, Chip's going to yes. be pissed. Yeah, it's in, pr- it's in print. I, pr- I checked. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, and if not, I'll, I'll lend him a copy. Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind is by Hayao Miyazaki, who's now known as like the cranky old man of animation, who's like a genius who just keeps talking shit about everyone except for Hideki Anno. And Nausicaa was the manga that he made that ran in an anime magazine, like an anime Two, fan magazine. One, zero. <laughs> okay, so what I'm going to say now is... <laughs> I'm going to let you continue, but that was one minute without telling us anything about the book. Nausicaa <laughs> is an environmental tale. Oh, if you've right. seen yep. Nausicaa or if you've seen Princess Mononoke, Princess Mononoke is almost like a redo of Nausicaa with like the environmental themes of man versus nature, you know, the reaping what we have sown as a society about the end times of humanity, about how pollution's taking over the earth and this one girl might hold the key to saving the the last of us it's a really good environmental fable and it doesn't look anything like any manga we've read and maybe doesn't look anything like any manga we're gonna read okay Miyazaki was really heavily influenced by European comics by Mobius especially so Nausicaa is a seven volume series it's collected as a standalone hardcover slipcase situation with all seven volumes in it you know what I'll like I'm gonna recommend this one like the last time we made a recommendation just start reading it. Read at least volume one. And if you want to see what happens next, keep reading. And if you don't, don't. But I think that there's a lot to talk about in Nausicaa. And I think it's a really interesting book that we don't think of as classic manga, but absolutely is. And maybe influenced, you know, through Miyazaki's ongoing work in animation, I think that's influenced more comics than a hell of a lot of manga maybe ever gets credit for. All right. All right. All right. You, you saved it. <laughs> well i just didn't know if they're gonna let me have 1982 as classic manga you guys picked stuff from like 72 so yeah yeah I didn't oh, want to, uh, you're no, a cheater but that's all right i'm a cheater i'm a cheater all right so here the drum roll this is what i'll say first of all i'm going with devil man because uh <laughs> he's got a buddy that does drugs and has a machine gun david understands yeah. my nice. needs my <laughs> desires in a way you that really frankly, are the same person yeah Devin, chris you just don't Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do uh, Nausicaa next because, frankly, I haven't actually seen any of the movies oh. that you're oh, referencing really? either. Not a fan of animation. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but I've heard people talk about Nausicaa a lot, and I, I think that'd be a good one to tackle. Common Rider is dead last because it sounds kind of dumb. <laughs> it also gives us some leeway because i'm not sure when we can get the books <laughs> yeah yeah there's also that yeah <laughs> yeah mid-december so yeah <laughs> those are my decrees and so shall it be fair and just as always sir. thank you 
that means that after this episode, this is the, where are we on this list? This is Drunken Doom episode. We have next week is Raw Hero, followed by the short story Look Back, then Vinland Saga Volume 1, Golden Kamui Volume 1, Wotakoi Volume 1, and then another classic manga, Gundam The Origin Volume 1, and then Devilman, Nausicaa, and Common Rider. Can I just point out that the smile on David's face when you said Raw Hero... <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be such a mess. Really, really. It makes me really look forward to reading it. <laughs> oh, man. I'm, I haven't read it yet. I just found <laughs> it. It's out of print, too. We're having, we're having a tough time recommending books that are actually in print, but it's in between mm. printings at Yen. Hopefully, they decide to bring it back at some point. But we'll all be reading that one digitally, unless we already happen to own the physical copies. <laughs> Maybe Mark will hook us up. Anyway, this has been an episode. It's been a fun <laughs> time. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Thank you to my panelists, my co-panelists here. Thanks to everyone listening at home. We will see you again next week for Raw Hero. Bianca. This has been Manga Explaining, episode 37. A Drunken Dream and Other Stories by Motohagyo. Thanks for listening. For our next episode, we'll be discussing the manga Raw Hero by Akira Hiromoto. Want to pick up a copy? Consider supporting your local comic book and manga specialty shop. You can find one near you at comicshoplocator.com or check your local library for print and digital lending options. You can also follow along with our complete reading list at mangasplaining.com. Thanks as always to DADS for their musical accompaniment this episode. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.